You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good afternoon uh, to all of you and to all of those in the overflow rooms downstairs. Uh, I'm Jessica Matthews, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and I want to thank you for joining us for this very special event with America's top military officer, General Martin Dempsey. General Dempsey took up his position as chairman of the Joint Chiefs in October, succeeding Admiral Mike Mullen, whom we were very fortunate to host as a speaker in the, his last week of his tenure. So it gives me a special pleasure to, to welcome General Dempsey near the beginning of his term of office and to uh, offer him a chance to sum up when he's finished uh, here in this same chair. Um, every chairman faces a, a daunting array of challenges. But General Dempsey, I think, has inherited a tougher entree than most. There are the crises, uh, Iran, Syria, Sudan, but there are always crises. I'm thinking more of systemic challenges. Um, under his watch, a decade of war in Iran, in Iraq and Afghanistan are drawing to an uncertain close. And there is the challenge of constructing um, an outcome there, not that looks like conventional victory, but that looks as, um, as acceptable and positive as we can make it. Second, the Asia-Pacific region, region with its growing wealth and military power um, uh, is taking on a new significance and has recently prompted a major shift in American strategy, the so-called Asia pivot. There are no prior examples in history of a world order that has been able to peacefully accommodate a new great power. It was this uncomfortable fact that lay behind China's now abandoned slogan of peaceful rise. Uh, so this, um, this challenge has to rate um, at the very top. And third uh, is the coming wave of budget cuts and the challenge of matching those cuts to creating and sustaining a force that will be flexible and effective and able to safeguard national interests in a rapidly changing security environment um, for which the crystal ball is still pretty cloudy. Um, as the president's principal military advisor and the leader of 2.2 million men and women in uniform, there are no easy decisions that reach the chairman's desk, and that is certainly true uh, for this chairman. Given his enormous responsibilities, uh, the country is very fortunate to have in General Dempsey a man of great experience and quiet wisdom. He has served in uniform for 38 years, moving 22 times, and living in all corners of the world. As he rose through the ranks, he taught English at West Point, he serves as an advisor to one of his predecessors as chairman, and he assumed an impressive array of increasingly weighty commands. During, his early, during the early days of the war in Iraq, he distinguished himself commanding the 1st Armored Division in Baghdad. He later commanded CENTCOM and the Army's Training and Doctrine Command, becoming Army Chief of Staff last April. Less than eight weeks into that job, President Obama tapped him as chairman and uh, the pinnacle of a long and distinguished military career. Since taking office, he has passionately de dedicated himself to rebuilding the joint force, preparing it to meet future threats, and keeping faith with our troops and with their families. Secretary Gates has praised him for his intellectual heft, moral courage, and strategic vision. Not a bad recommendation. Secretary President Obama has called him one of the nation's most respected and combat-tested generals. We at Carnegie are deeply honored to have him here with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming General Martin Dempsey. Thank you, Jessica. Very kind. Well, thank you, Jessica, for that very kind uh, introduction, and thanks all of you for your presence here today. I, I didn't know there was an overflow room. I haven't had this kind of crowd since the last time I sang karaoke at a local... Uh... <laughs> now, actually, that's not true. Um, but I, I am encouraged, actually, to see such a large crowd to 
uh, because it tells me that you've got the uh, right things on your mind in terms of uh, uh, what's important for our nation as we go forward with a certain number of challenges that you actually laid out quite articulately. I, I will say that on occasion, some of my peers, uh, the uh, chiefs of defense in other countries will will kind of uh, almost uh, express a certain amount of sympathy for my plight as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff of the United States of America. And I said, are you kidding me? I'm the chief of defense, senior military officer for the finest military force that the, that the world has ever seen. And I also came in the service 38 years ago with the idea that I might actually try to make a difference. And those two things have converged for me in a rather... Uh, incredible way, and I consider it a blessing every day I put on the uniform to serve this great country and the men and women who, uh, who choose to serve as well. I was out in Colorado Springs just yesterday where we are conducting the Wounded Warrior Games, kind of a Paralympics, actually. Uh, each service fields a team of about 50 wounds, illnesses, things that have uh, changed their lives. And their motto is, is uh, ability over disability. It's, it's a fantastic thing to see. I mention it just to keep it all in context. You know, right now in Afghanistan, it's, it's the nearing that time of the day when we do most of our military operations. And so uh, I think that uh, the challenges you outlined for us uh, we'll, we, we will figure it out, and we'll figure it out because that's what we do, and we'll figure it out because we've got, we got a nation and its sons and daughters counting on us to do that. So let me, I want to say a few words, and I think then uh, we'll have the chance to, to have that conversation that's advertised up there. The subtext, I think, that I would like to uh, uh, suggest is... Um, um, making strategy work. You know that over the past months we've, we've uh, formulated what I guess is now being called a new defense strategy. It's a, built on a foundation of the QDR, of course, but it is, a, it is new in several important ways. And uh, I'll mention three of them. Uh, w one of the ways in which it's new is this rebalancing, if you will, to the Pacific. Not that we've ever left the Pacific, but rather a rebalancing to the Pacific. And I, I would suggest to you, because I'm asked, I was in NATO last week, and they were asking me with great interest, you know, what does it mean that you're rebalancing into the Pacific? And I suggested, I, I suggested to them that uh, it's, it's a process, not, you know, a light switch, that will work our way into it. It starts with uh, intellectual bandwidth more than anything else, which is why I'm happy to be here with you today. Uh, one of the centers of gravity of uh, thinking of na about national security matters in our country. And um, we have to shift some of our intellectual bandwidth and start to understand um, how, to, how to rebalance ourselves. So it's not just about resources or equipment or basing, it's about thinking. And we are uh, beginning that process. Now, the second thing is building partners. One of the cornerstones of our new strategy is building partners. And th this is not of necessity because we'll be doing less. It's because the world that we have uh, seen evolve around us over the last, let's say, 20 years in general, but 10 years in particular, is a world in which I've described it as a, uh, a security paradox where, um, where, where although evolutionary, we're at an evolutionary low in violence in the world right now. But it doesn't feel like that really, does it? And it doesn't feel like that because the, there's a proliferation of capabilities, uh, technologies to middleweight actors, non-state actors, that actually makes the world feel and potentially be more dangerous uh, than any time I remember in uniform and now recall that I came in the Army in 1974. And this isn't by way, I'm not saying this by way of establishing my credentials so that when budget reductions come our way, we can throw up the shield of the security paradox. It's because it generally is a paradox. And it's not a paradox that necessarily has to be met with bigger military forces. I think it's a paradox that has to be met with different military forces. And, and among the things that will make that work are the, our ability to, to build on existing partnerships around the globe, notably the North Atlantic Alliance, uh, others as well, but and then emerging partners around the globe. Because 
what we've seen our adversaries do is kind of decentralize. They rarely mass against us any longer. They decentralize, they network, and they syndicate. They network using 21st century information technologies, and then they syndicate together groups of state actors, non-state actors, criminal actors, and they come together and they pull apart based on uh, moments in time when they want to find common purpose against us. So in that world, we, the probably quintessential hierarchical institution on the face of the planet, I, and I would, if anybody wants to lay claim to that title during the q and I'd be happy to find out who you are. Because I think that we do have the market cornered on, hi on hierarchy. But we, the quintessential hierarchical organization, have to find ways to be a network ourselves. And that means a network of interagency partners, internal to our government. We have to be a lot more joint. We keep saying that, but we actually, at this point in time, we better pull it off. And we have to partner with um, and network with uh, other countries who are like-minded with us because it makes that network stronger. It's not just about outsourcing particular responsibilities or capabilities. It's about building a stronger network uh, to defeat the networks that confront us. And, and I've recently, if you're interested, I've, I was in NATO, I was in Colombia, I was in Jordan. And I think that, 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 that narrative that I just described to you on the importance of partners was reinforced for me uh, in, the, in those travels. And I'd be I'd be happy to talk with you. Now, look, building partnerships is not an easy endeavor. In fact, in NATO, the 28 of us, me and my 27 closest North Atlantic partners, were sitting around a room for what seemed to be in nearly interminable briefings and so forth. But uh, and so somebody said to me, "How would you, you know, how would you describe, uh, you know, the our relationship as chiefs of defense, all of us?" I said, "You know, it kind of reminds me." of a letter that my wife wrote me when I was in Operation Desert Storm. Now, this is when we still wrote letters. Mind you, today we text, you know. In fact, some of you are probably texting each other right here in this room. Uh, and, if, and certainly, if you have children, you know that the last time they answered their phone is quite a while ago, but they'll answer your text almost immediately. But in any case, I said it reminds me of, of a letter that my wife wrote me back in Desert Storm, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm just so miserable without you. It's almost as though you were right here with me. <laughs> now, I think I, I, I confronted her afterwards on whether that was some kind of you know, Freudian slip or something. Um, and she assured me it was, it was a slip. She didn't intentionally put that particular phraseology in the letter. But it did remind me of how it is being a member of big alliances where, you know, you're miserable without them, but it's pretty miserable being with them, too, to try to, you know, gain the consensus and the common interest that you need. Okay, but so there's a couple of things in that, in that uh, area of building partners, though, that I think we need to take on uh, if we consider it to be among the three pillars of our new strategy. And uh, some of those are issues of intelligence sharing, technology transfer, foreign military sales. You know, the, the, we have to reform some of our processes that actually tend in some cases, maybe even in many cases, to uh, somewhat hinder our ability to build partners. So building partners, the second. The first was rebalancing to the Pacific. The second one is building partners. The third, the third aspect of this new strategy is the integration of capabilities that we didn't have 10 years ago. And of course, most of them are probably uh, fairly obvious to you. If we were having this conversation 10 years ago, we, uh, the, the acronym ISR would have been somewhat elusive to all but the, but the lifelong practitioner of the military art. I'd venture to say that most of you in the audience today probably have heard that term ISR. The acronym itself means intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. It's been blended into uh, that acronym, and it, it fundamentally it means our ability to collect uh, intelligence and information, full motion video, signals intelligence uh, remotely in ways that, frankly, 10 years ago would probably, 15 years ago certainly would have been the stuff of a science fiction novel. But we can do it today. The second one is cyber uh, and the domain that we call cyberspace. Domain in the sense that it has its own unique requirements, it has its own unique capabilities, it has its own vulnerabilities, and it has its own opportunities. And uh, we've learned a lot about it over the past 10 years. We must continue to learn, and we have to integrate it. We have to integrate these somewhat 
heretofore niche capabilities into our normal um, way of operating uh, because it makes us much better, but also because it makes us much smarter. And, um, and the third one, of course, is special operating forces, which over the past 10 years or so have increased about fourfold in number, but I would venture to say 25-fold in capability. And so these, these three in particular, but not uniquely those, there are others, capabilities that uh, have, as I said, uh, in former times been kind of additive or niche capabilities are now increasingly becoming integrated into the traditional conventional way of, uh, of operating. And again, provide us some pretty significant opportunities for the future. So in, in the, in the uh, interest of uh, completing my remarks and then getting to your questions, I, I would simply say to you that we've moved now from um, uh, writing our new strategy to beginning to challenge ourselves on what, what it will take to really deliver it. And the three things I mentioned here today to you, uh, rebalancing to the Pacific, uh, building our partners, and, and adapting our policies to allow us to build our partners. And then integrating these new capabilities really are the key to that, to that endeavor. So with that, I know that you're eager to ask a few questions. Uh, I'm looking forward to, I asked uh, Jessica to please be sure to identify those of you who have the greatest possibility of asking me easy questions. And if, oh, there we go. That's the, the watch out for that guy. All right. Okay, go ahead. Let me ask you a couple of things to introduce yourselves, um, uh, to be brief, and to, if you would, this is not meant to be a press conference, but a conversation, so please dive behind the, behind the headlines a bit and, uh, and ask some provocative questions. I'm going to start today in the back, right there on the aisle. Stanley Roth, The Boeing Company. I want to go back to the beginning of your remarks where you talked about the rebalancing in Asia and ask if you could talk a little bit more about two things associated with that. One is, how does that relate to the air-sea battle, the emerging doctrine, the ability to execute on this rebalancing? Mm -hmm. And second, what would sequestration do to our ability to carry that out? Didn't you hear what Jessica <laughs> just said? <laughs> um, okay, a couple of things about our rebalancing to the, to the Pacific. Air-sea battle. Air-sea battle is a multi-service, not joint. It's a two-service approach to overcoming anti-access. So not unique to the Pacific, incidentally. It's, it's, it's unique to, if anything, increasing capability. This goes back to the proliferation of technology to, to a wide audience of potential adversaries who can take our particular advantages and cause us to have to stand off because of anti-access technologies, whether it's jammers, whether it's um, long-range precision munitions. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole suite of, technology, of technological capabilities. Air-sea battle is obviously the Air Forces and the, uh, and the Navy's approach to overcoming anti-access. But it sits nested under something that I actually uh, own, if you will, which is the the uh, joint operational access concept. So the chairman, in collaboration with combatant commanders, has a concept to uh, ensure we can overcome anti-access in all domains, anti-access in the land domain. What might prevent access in the land domain? IEDs, for example, which have become a, uh, an adversary's asymmetric way of denying us access, even when they're f we are far superior to them in terms of numbers and and technological ability. So joint operational access is intended to ensure our freedom of movement as a military. Air-sea battle is the particular multi-service approach to overcoming the specific anti-access strategies in the air and maritime domain. Okay, how would sequestration, and by the way, as I said, importantly, it's not just Asia-Pacific. I mean, Iran has an anti-access strategy that we might potentially have to overcome. Um, what, what would the effect of sequestration be? Let me, not talk about, let me not talk about sequestration in particular. Let me talk about uh, budgetary issues in general. Because one of, the, one of the things that I've tried to articulate somewhat successfully, somewhat unsuccessfully, and you, know, you may decide I've, 
I've moved it a bit here in one direction or the other today. Even if we didn't have any budget limitations, reductions, constraints, whatever adjective you choose, um, we would really need to change based on what we've learned over the last 10 years of war and where we see security, the security environment going in the future. So we've tried to jump out, I say we, the, the Joint Chiefs and the combatant commanders in collaboration, we've tried to jump out to 2020 and decide what that threat environment would look like, then to determine what capabilities we would need to address it, and then look backwards at ourselves sitting in 2012, getting ready to submit a budget that goes from 13 to 17, knowing we would have four opportunities over the next four years to build this force for 2020 against a strategy that we conceived back in, uh, in the fall. And 1317 submission was just really the first step in what will be four steps because we'll submit the POMs, the, the Program Operating Memorandums, for 13, 17, 14, 18, 15, 19, 16, 20. So if we, if we don't do it the way I just described, we will be doing this on an annual basis with no uh, framework uh, or really no idea where we want to be in 2020, and we'll just back ourselves into 2020. Now, I, I said I'm not going to talk about sequestration, but I have to mention sequestration in the context of the question. So as I stand here today before you, we submitted our budget in February. It's in markup right now in the Congress of the United States. I don't know what it's going to come back looking like. It's a pretty delicately balanced instrument. That is to say, we tried to balance the reductions and build the best possible force we could against the strategy that we'd articulated. It'll come back. It won't be exactly as we submitted. It never is. And then we'll make some adjustments. But to that complexity, that's pretty complex work, that we're not finished yet with FY13's budget. Sequestration comes potentially on the heels of that. And I don't know if you're familiar with the first rule of wing walking. I'm not this as old as I'm about to sound. I look it, but I'm not as old as I'm about to sound. Wing walking back in the early part of, your 20, of, the, of the 20th century, you may recall, was sport or carnival stuff. But the first rule of wing walking, this is walking on the wings of biplanes, the first rule of wing walking was never let go with both hands at the same time for pretty obvious reasons. So when people ask me, are you working on sequestration? The answer is no, not yet. I don't have a, I have a grip on what I think 13 is going to look like, but it's not done yet. And were I to now do this and come up short, I'm, I'll get thrown off the wings. So in the spirit of my Air Force brothers, I'm following the first rule of wing walking, and we haven't done anything with it at this point. Okay, right here. We'll take two right here, okay? Oh, my. Everybody's going to have to be very brief because there are 100 questions in the room. Hi. My name is Ann Rutherford, and I'm just a mom from Silverna Park. I was wondering... We have a lot of people who say that the Pakistani ISI was well aware of Osama bin Laden's pro mm -hmm. presence there. Um, and how do you address working with them as a partner and also how that would bleed into the uh, green on blue attacks in Afghanistan and all the undercurrent of that bad feeling? Yeah, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of threads in, that come together to uh, form that question. The question of our relationship with Pakistan in general is, is one of uh, complexity, I mean, deep complexity. Um, also, some pretty significant commitment military to military. Uh, a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of mistrust, fundamentally. That has, that, and this is not a new phenomenon. It goes back, tr truthfully, decades. For example, uh, officers of my generation have a pretty close relationship with each other because we went to each other's schools. Uh, we've gotten to know each other over time, but there's a generation behind that, for reasons that are, that are pretty well known, didn't come to our schools. We didn't engage with them. And so we've got these kind of generational gaps in our relationship that, that frankly create a lot of mistrust and misunderstanding. There, we are concerned, have been concerned, have been pretty... Uh, up front with them. I try not to 
not to, not to have the relationship play out in public, but rather work it as closely as I can privately. But I do remain concerned about the safe havens uh, that run along the eastern Afghan border, the western Pakistan border. Um, the, the green on blue that you describe, and for those of you that aren't exactly familiar with that phraseology, it's the insider threat or the act of Afghan soldiers or policemen turning on their U.S. or, or coalition partners. It's related, but it's not, that's not one that I can see particularly a cause and effect. Uh, the, the green on blue is, uh, if we take 100 instances, even that issue is complex. If we took 100 of them, probably 25 of them would be based on ideological uh, and religious differences, maybe even affiliation with the Taliban, maybe even affiliated with the Pakistan Taliban. I mean, everyone has its own challenge. Um, the other 75 of that 100 would be for uh, other reasons, whether it's tribal or, or, or having been insulted or felt like they weren't respected, or internal problems to that particular Afghan soldier's family, uh, much like we sometimes see with the pressures of war on our own families. So it's a huge challenge, and I, and I think you know that what we're, what we're working on is, uh, is we're working on it uh, from several different directions. One is counterintelligence operations inside of those formations ourselves, biometrics, education, um, tactics, techniques, and procedures when we're with and around them that I wouldn't state publicly, but that allow us to always be protected. Um, so it's extraordinarily complex. The, the relationship with Pakistan is my most, my most complex relationship, but one to which I'm committed to trying to find increasingly common interests, certainly along the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Marvin Kalb here, and then we'll take right here, and then we'll move to the back. Marvin Kalb with the Brookings. Um, General, is there today a doctrine that governs the use of American military power? I, I have in mind the Powell Doctrine being so central to our operations during the Persian Gulf War. Is there something similar? Is there a piece of the Powell Doctrine that exists today in your mind as a functioning part? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Uh, let, me, let me describe um, where we are today and maybe even a glimpse of where we might need to be. So if you think about the Powell Doctrine as guiding us in the early days of the 90s, you know, the, the, uh, roughly from Desert Storm out through the middle, which, which of course, was you know, clear, end, clear objectives, clear end state, overwhelming force. We found that that model didn't, you know, this is about finding models that fit in each sort of phase of, a, of the evolution of security challenges. And we found that model didn't fit real well toward the end of the 90s, as you recall, because the challenges that faced this, first and foremost, they weren't existential necessarily. So you couldn't galvanize the entire nation behind a particular challenge. Secondly, um, the definition of overwhelming force in, for example, a peacekeeping or peace enforcement mission in Bosnia was pretty hard to define. Uh, and so, you know, we, but we, we, we adapted into a peacekeeping. Um, we, we've, after fighting against peacekeeping for some time, we conceded that the military had a role in peacekeeping, and we then began to embrace it. Along came 9-11, and as you know famously, we went uh, from sort of the traditional template back to the PAL doctrine, and then realized that, what, that the, what, what confronted us in those two theaters was really a counterinsurgency. And so we dusted off counterinsurgency doctrine. It was, it was updated by the Army and the Marine Corps, and we embraced the counterinsurgency doctrine. So what you've heard me talk about today now, I think, is kind of a nascent, uh, it's, inchoate might be the right word. We've got, we are just beginning to adapt from counterinsurgency as kind of our central organizing principle. And I, if I had to put a tagline on it today, it would be very premature for me to do it, but I'm going to do it. I would say that where we're headed is something that I might describe as a global networked approach to warfare, a global networked approach. And it gets back to my point about um, taking these capabilities we haven't had before 
integrating them, really integrating them into our conventional capabilities, partnering differently in a very, with a very different goal and with very different process to, processes to support it, and allowing ourselves to confront these networked decentralized foes with something other than huge formations of soldiers, sailors, airmen, or marines. So there's, I, I'm trying to, I have, I'm not there yet. I admit it up front, this is kind of an inchoate idea. But I do think that we, what we're looking for in the future is to take that counterinsurgency strategy, which is very static, very manpower intensive, uh, and, um, and, and see what we can do with smaller organizations, but that are networked globally and with partners in order to confront these challenges that might range from terrorism, because it's still out there, to piracy, to transnational organized crime. Uh, but again, this is, a, this is a work in progress. But I've thought about it a lot. That's great. General, are you comfortable if I do two or three at once, and then you can kind of pick? Or would you? Yeah, and then I'll pick whichever one I really want to answer. That'd be great. <laughs> Why so I many that? questions. We'll start right here, and then I'll go to the back. Okay, uh, my name is Mark Botsford from Botsford Global. Um, I wanted to pick up on what you just talked about about partners and networking, and how you, if you could explain to us your feeling about working with partners that um, and networks that have a problem with rule of law. And institutions, um, you know, have, have, you know, making institutions stronger, and 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 the, and the traditional relationships between the military and local law enforcement, mm -hmm. and how that how how that all interplays, you know, within the partnership yeah. strategy. Yeah, uh, for, um, among the uh, lessons of the last ten years of war, uh, prominent among those lessons is that when we engage in uh, in counterinsurgency in particular, not uniquely, but in particular, it's not enough just to address the military instrument of power. I mean, we talked about this whole of government, which, by the way, over time actually began to take some shape. You know, in the beginning of, let's say, 2003, 04, 05 in Iraq, I'd say whole of government was kind of a, a, a line on a PowerPoint slide. But over time, it, it actually began to deliver. I'll give you one vignette, to a personal vignette, to, to highlight this. In 2003, I became the first commander of multinational division Baghdad. And um, there was no security force for reasons that we all know. And we won't talk about whether that was a good idea or not. But there was no security force. And so we were the security, and it became very clear to us, that is to say, those who wear the, the uniform of soldiers and Marines, notably, that we, we had to find a way to get some local security forces on the street. So I began with my subordinate commanders to build a, uh, a almost a uh, paramilitary army, but army-like force. I can't even remember the acronym we called it. It, it. it became sort of the father of the Afghan army. But it was local. It was, you know, we trained them for a very minimal amount of time. And the idea was to get a face, if you will. That was the phrase. Get a face on security that was an Iraqi face. Concurrently, the Department of State uh, began to try to build back up the police forces in Baghdad. And the, just to show you the depth of the disconnect, so I was... I was training this group of, let's call them um, National Guardsmen, really, is what they were. I mean, that's what we call them now that I remember, the Iraqi National Guard. I was training them to actually operate in a counterinsurgency environment against an enemy that was very well armed, by the way, even by then. By October of 03, the enemy began to manifest itself, the insurgency. And they were good. I mean, they were um, armed and equipped and organized. But the police that we were building were being trained in... Investi you know, in, in investigations and in traffic tickets, you know, traffic circles. I'm not making that up, I'm, and I'm not denigrating it. It was an instinct. We were mirror imaging our own experience, and the police were getting clobbered. I mean, their police stations were being run over. They were being killed by the dozens. And so it took us a bit of time to come together, Department of State, Department of Defense, and decide how we would work collaboratively uh, on building up both the army and the police, and, it, and we conceded that for a time these police are going to have to have capability that you wouldn't have to have were you sitting here in, in Washington, D.C. Over time, this whole of government collaboration began to, began to bear fruit. But 
to your other point about the complexity of this, you know, issues of rule of law, and I'll, I'll add corruption, um, are extraordinarily difficult to overcome because it's very difficult for us to even see it and then let alone having seen it address it. And as you know, uh, just two years ago, we, we had to stand up an anti-corruption task force in Afghanistan because we realized that the very mission was being placed at risk because of corruption. So I wouldn't suggest to you that we have turned the corner on fully understanding, first of all, how to address that as a whole of government, secondly, what the military's role is. But I will say we, we've come a long way since 03. Uh, and I think that as we go forward, as a learning organization, we have to keep plugging away at it. But we've, by the way, though, the end of this story is we've, we're closer as an interagency, as, as, as various agencies. We are a network. We are a network. The, but what, I, what we're all challenging ourselves now is how much better do we need to be to confront the challenges that are coming? We know how to confront the ones we just passed by, but there's new ones ahead. All right. Let's go back to the back. Um, all right, go ahead, Amber. Hi there, good afternoon. My name is John Glenn. I'm with U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, and thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. My question follows directly on there. I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the experiences we've had over the past 10 years in working in the interagency, but ask you about development. In particular, many military voices for the past bunch of years have said there won't be a military solution. It would ultimately have to be one that will be built on the ground with economic development. But that not being a military mission, can you talk to us more about the experiences that we've gained about how to work across the three Ds of diplomacy, development, and defense? Yeah, I'll try. But, I mean, this is one where, uh, um, you know, you know I, I actually, uh, I'm going to digress, but I'll circle back on you. Um, when I go speak to groups of young colonels who are about to become general officers, and often I'm, I'm invited, or admirals, I'm often invited also to speak to rising groups of senior executive civilians. And uh, I always get the question, you know, what's, what's most important? And my answer might surprise you. It's, it often surprises them. I, I tell them it's relationships. I say that because... To this gentleman's question about how did we make progress on these issues in Iraq and Afghanistan, we, fundamentally we made progress as we started to build relationships with each other. And that took a couple of years, by the way. And now, but if there was a captain standing up here, I mean, I probably, I think the first person I ever met in the State Department, I was probably a lieutenant colonel with 22 years in the service. I'm, I'm not making that up. I mean, we had no reason. <laughs> We had no reason to interact with each other in, back in those days, really, at least at the lieutenant colonel level. I mean, as you got more senior, probably so. Today, you can't find a lieutenant that hasn't been partnered with somebody from USAID or, or the Department of State or, or Justice or any number of other agencies of government. So that, you know, that, the question I actually ask myself now is, how in the world will we maintain that relationship and those personal connections as the conflicts dissipate and we all go back to our cubicles, because that's going to happen. You know, we're all, all of my soldiers are going to go back to Fort Hood and Fort Bragg and Fort Lewis, and all the State Department folks are going to go back to Foggy Bottom, and never the twain shall meet, unless we do something about it. And I, and I think as a leader development issue, I think we, we owe it to ourselves and our nation to do something about that. We have a question oh, over here. As well. I, okay, okay. I, I didn't answer the second part, but I think that's probably the start of it. Yes, this sir. It's been a very um, yeah. eager Questioner. Uh, yes, sir. I'm uh, Liliana Rodriguez from former NDU student. So, uh, when you speak about building partnership and networks, are you including uh, international intelligence sharing? Because sometimes it's very difficult to match transparency and secrecy. I'm actually speaking specifically about how do we share intelligence. No, I am. I mean, we we do decent at that. Not perfect, but we do it pretty well. Actually, we actually do it very well. Uh, much better than we did, again, back if, when, when I remember intelligence sharing, even internal to our own government in the 90s compared to what we do today, it's just phenomenal. So I was actually speaking specifically about the requirement to take a look at our intel sharing parameters with our partners, uh, technology transfer, foreign military sales processes, 
All of those right now uh, are, I mean, look, I'm not saying anything I haven't said to those who own the processes. They're really Cold War processes that have not yet adapted themselves to what we really need to be doing today. And in order to deliver the strategy that we've all agreed is the right strategy for the country, we've got to get after those processes. Right here. Um, Right behind, wait for the... Uh, Jacques Roumani, Middle East Specialist. I, I think you mentioned Iran in passing, and last week your Israeli counterpart, um, Benny Gantz, the Chief of Staff, um, mentioned that there has been increased preparedness by Israel as well as the United States and other countries. Assuming you can confirm that, um, is this a coordinating, coordinated effort in case of a confrontation with Iran? And at what level is this coordination taking place now. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure I'm not sure I've ever been accused of talking about Iran in passing. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I I, let me confirm for you that the United States and Israel have I I can't speak to other nations who I would certainly uh, prefer to have them speak for themselves. And I know they would rather speak for themselves. But Israel and I uh, Benny Gantz and I in Israel and the United States have been closely collaborating on any number of fronts, especially, especially in the area of intel sharing, so that we can come to a common understanding of the threat uh, and of the likely timelines that we might have to confront. Uh, and, um, you know, I've probably met with Benny more than any other of my counterparts nearly every other month since I've been the chairman. And, uh, and that'll continue because, of course, we have uh, common interests in, in the defense of Israel, as well as ensuring uh, that, well, as you know, we've said we're determined to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state. So I can assure you that we are collaborating with uh, the Israeli military on intel sharing and, and on our posture, I wouldn't say it rises, I will say it does not rise to the level of joint military planning, but we're closely collaborating. Oh my, right, right back there, right there, yeah. Good afternoon, General Larry Shaughnessy from CNN. Um, in the past few weeks, we've seen North Korea attempt to launch a rocket. We've seen the new leader give a long speech, longer than any, any speech his father gave, and we've seen a rather large military parade. I was wondering, with that sudden rush of information coming out of North Korea, um, if you have a better understanding of where this new leadership may go, and if you could share anything with us about what you understand. Yeah, I would describe, uh, I would say that what's been interesting is that he is clearly a different person than his father, and that's just not, I don't, I, that's not just a function of his age. I think he has a different view of, uh, of his role in the in the uh, public, not only is it the speech he gave, but he's been he's more much more traveled than his father was. He's traveled, I think, to fifty five or fifty six different places around the country. Um, now, I will say uh, a lot of those visits have been to military installations, and you heard in his speech where he said that you know priorities one, two, and three for him are his military. That's distressing, I mean, given he's leading a country that is starving to death. Um, but uh, the fact that he's a different leader with a, with a different persona, I think, is worth exploring. And um, uh, my role in all this, of course, is military preparedness. And we're in, back to who am I in close contact with, the other, the other chief of defense with whom I spend a great deal of time in person and on the phone as my, as my South Korean counterpart, as well as other interested chiefs of defense in the region. So, you know, I think it's probably still premature to make any determination about what leader uh, Kim Jong-un will be, though we were all uh, disturbed by the, by the uh, ballistic missile launch, uh, which came on the heels of what we thought was a positive engagement. Uh, but we maintain our military preparedness, and I know that there are others working the diplomatic side of it. There's a question right there. Thank you very much. My name is Nike Ching with the Voice of America Chinese Branch, VOA. Thanks so much for your remarks. Very informational. So with that appreciation in mind, I'm going to throw a softball. 
my question is regarding the fourth U.S.-China strategic and economic dialogue, which will be held in Beijing later this week. And with that framework, a bilateral uh, security dialogue between U.S. and China on the military front has been established. So. Uh, could you please share with us uh, the, the issues and specific agendas that will be discussed? Uh, and the next question is, uh, you mentioned, the second question is, you just mentioned about building a partnership. Um, I would like to get your take on the South China Sea issue, especially uh, on the standoff between China and Philippines, mm -hmm. especially after the U.S. just announced the partnership with the Philippines. Thank you so yeah. much. Well, first of all, I think it's probably worth mentioning where I see our future with China. You know, we're balancing, we're balancing ourselves back into the Pacific. Um, that's not a containment strategy for China. In fact, I don't know how many of you study history, but Thucydides, uh, the uh, Greek historian, uh, described what he called the this, this Thucydides trap. And it goes something like this. It was Athenian fear of a rising Sparta that made war inevitable. Well, I think that one of my jobs as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and as an advisor to our senior leaders is to help avoid a Thucydides trap. We don't want a, the fear of an emerging China to make war inevitable. So Thucydides, we're going to avoid Thucydides trap. And I think there's more opportunities than liabilities for us in the Pacific. Of course, you've heard all of our senior leaders say we embrace a rising China. And uh, I, I'll tell you that in terms of partnerships, we have, when I was chief of staff of the Army, uh, I, I was able to meet with my uh, PLA uh, counterpart. And those relationships are, you know, they're slow and they're, uh, they're you know, they're youthful, but uh, they're, they're positive. And each service has a different kind of relationship with its particular service. But that's because we're, we're trying to work it out. Next week or two weeks from now, I go to, Shang, to uh, Singapore to the Shangri-La Dialogue. I'm hopeful that my Chinese counterpart will be there. And we'll talk, you know, very openly and transparently about what we're trying to do in the, in the Pacific to, uh, to uh, both build these partners and what those partnerships are intended to do. And simply stated, they're intended to ensure stability. And they're also intended to assure, A-S-S-U-R-E, and they're intended to uh, make it clear that we have some, um, some interest in navigation and commerce and access to which we intend to live, meaning we, live, we need to live up to those responsibilities that we have uh, as an Asia-Pacific partner. And I say Asia-Pacific, by the way, because there is this other country called India over here that is also modestly sized and probably will be somewhat influential in the future. So yeah, I, I don't know exactly what the, what the agenda will be at that particular conference. I can tell you what my agenda is, though. All right. I think we have time for two more or something. Amber, right next to you. Yes. Yeah. Then we'll go up here. Uh, thank you for the discussion. And uh, my name is Taufik Hamid from the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies. I would like just to know your definition for the word victory in Afghanistan. What are the parameters of this victory? And why the war has been protracted? Why the most superior power on earth is taking that long to defeat the Taliban? And what are the reasons for this? And how can we deal with that? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. I mean, I, you know, I am a student, I am a student of, of vocabulary, and, you know, there are synonyms out there, you know, victory, win, success, you know, um, defeat. So uh, let, me, let me zero in on the, the one question you asked, though, about why is it taking so long? Because that, that's a fair question. I, th I would suggest to you it's taking so long because we're trying to do it right. And I really mean that. Look, could we have started at one end of Afghanistan and fundamentally overrun it, um, uh, destroyed it, uh, created a situation where we would make it a near certainty that the Taliban couldn't, couldn't come back because there wouldn't be anything to come back to? Of course we could. But that's not who we are. And I certainly don't think that's what Afghanistan was, would expect of us. And I happen to believe it's not what any of Afghanistan's neighbors would expect of us. So because we've tried to do it right, we've had some starts and stops. And in some cases, we've made more progress than others. Um, but I'll tell you, when I say do it right, it's about building a nation that has institutions to support it over time 
and that can provide for its own security. If you're asking me for my definition of victory in Afghanistan, that's the definition. And I think that in, t in terms of my responsibility to do that, it's about building the Afghan national It's two things. It's, of course, creating some space by lowering violence while we build up the Afghan national security forces. And I just came back from there last week and spent a day with the Afghan commandos. And it was one of the more inspirational days of my life because for the first time, frankly, I saw not only a formation that was capable of shooting, it had the right equipment, it was organ, you know, they, they knew that which squad they were in and which platoon and which company. But it was more than that. They actually felt a sense of obligation um, to their country, not to us. We don't need them feeling an obligation to us. They need to feel an obligation to their own country. And this was, by the way, a very ethnically diverse group of young men. Now that's the special forces and I, you know, they're, they're a little bit ahead of everybody else because we've placed more emphasis on them. But I'll tell you that for the first time I felt as though there was some sense of nationhood there that frankly I hadn't felt for maybe the previous eight years. But it's taken time because the, the business of creating institutions where some have never existed is pretty hard slog. Okay, right here. Uh, yes, sir. My question is about Syria. Uh, recently, the Prime Minister of Turkey mentioned something about uh, the possibility of protecting the borders of uh, Turkey, which is a NATO country, from incursions from, uh, by the Syrians. Do you see any role for the United States uh, forces to be engaged in Syria, either at protecting a NATO border level or in protecting the uh, civilians in Syria? Well, as you know, my, my principal responsibility is to provide options to those political leaders, both in this country, but also in NATO. We talked about this last week in NATO, um, who may ask what we can do. And there, we can do a great many things, but we can't do everything. And among the things we can't do is guarantee a political outcome that would be better than the one that's there now, to tell you the truth. And so, but that's not for me to decide. I will tell you that in my travels in the region, there is great concern about rushing to, not rushing, because it's a, it's a tragic situation that, um, that the international community really should be far more galvanized about, it seems to me. But in that context of the great tragedy is also the reality that we, the, the nations in that region, I'm not speaking for myself now, but I am speaking from having just come back from the region, want to know what's next before they take that final step of military action. That's the message that I came back from uh, that part of the world uh, re uh, recalling. And so, again, my option is to provide our leaders and as part of an alliance, um, alliance leaders, I'm talking about NATO, should they choose to do something. And by the way, there's no planning going on in NATO. But were there to be, we would be, we would be part of it and we would uh, provide our political leaders options, military options. But my, back to the what's, what's, our, uh, what's, the, what's our doctrine, the military instrument alone, sh the military instrument should never be wielded alone. It's, it's clear that we could keep this conversation going easily until 10 p.m., um, but we are um, obliged to release General Dempsey at 3 p.m. To all of those I couldn't call on, my apologies. There are so many of you. Please join me in, in thanking General Dempsey for a fascinating night. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Great. Thanks.